Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The U.S. economy is looking strong, but Washington can still snatch defeat from the jaws of victory with a first-ever debt default if lawmakers can't raise the nation's borrowing limit. That, along with a full-year continuing resolution, could badly damage the Pentagon. As Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall said on our Air Power podcast yesterday, quote, if we have a year-long CR, we are giving away a year to the Chinese, giving it away for no good reason. Uh, end quote. Washington is going to send M1 tanks to Ukraine, so Germany clears its Leopard tanks for export to Kiev as Russia gears up for a major offensive as it takes massive casualties to claw back territory as it increases strikes across Ukraine. The White House has finally designated the Wagner Mercenary Group as a transnational terror organization. After a Quran was burned in front of the Turkish embassy in Stockholm, Recep Tayyip Erdogan has vowed to block Sweden's entry into NATO as Hungary also pushes back against Finland and Sweden joining the alliance. Having agreed to join the alliance together, Finland has called for a brief pause to let tensions calm. Asia continues to watch Ukraine as Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin visits Korea and the Philippines. This as we gain a little bit more insight into uh, the AUKUS deal as Australia, uh, the United Kingdom, and the United States work toward equipping Australia with nuclear-powered attack submarines and uh, Australian and British uh, leaders are meeting as well. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, who holds the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is now with the Center for a New American Security and the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, a must for anybody uh, interested in the Atlantic Alliance, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many uh, affiliations. Everybody, greetings. Welcome back. Uh, it wouldn't be Friday without you. Uh, before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors uh, our air warfare coverage. Everybody, uh, great to have you back on. As I uh, said, Michael, uh, debt drama uh, continues to play out. This is the Biden administration is preparing to submit its budget request uh, to Congress uh, in the first week of March. At least that's the plan. Walk us through uh, where we are uh, on uh, the debt drama, the continuing resolution drama, the defense spending outlook drama, because all these dramas are, you know, give me the Alka-Seltzer. Yeah, no kidding. And, and just get ready. This is going to be like our discussions of Build Back Better last year, because this is an issue that's not going to go away uh, for many months. Uh, so uh, this week, you know, this, uh, Mitch McConnell uh, made it clear that the Senate Republicans are going to take a hands-off approach uh, on, on the debt ceiling. And it, it's also made it clear that even though we had 14 Republicans that voted for raising the debt limit last time, he doesn't think he would even have the votes uh, right now to get to, uh, to, to raise the debt ceiling in the Senate. So it's really up to McCarthy uh, and Biden. And it looks like the White House plans to meet with McCarthy uh, sometime before the State of the Union address, which is scheduled for February 7th, uh, to begin these discussions. Um, now, look, McCarthy's aiming for a budget cap deal uh, that would cap federal spending at the FY22 levels. That's clearly, I don't think, going to happen. Uh, at the same time, uh, Biden 
And the Democrats, you know, look at the debt ceiling as something they should not be negotiating over uh, and that they should raise the debt ceiling uh, with a clean debt limit bill. Uh, and then uh, they would sit down and have negotiations about spending cuts. I don't think that's going to be the outcome either. Uh, but, you know, last week we talked about the different options and how the discharge petition was a strong option. Uh, but as of now, uh, the moderate uh, Republicans in the House have, have told uh, their, their leadership that they're not going to sign a discharge petition. They're going to give McCarthy uh, time uh, to negotiate uh, with the White House. Uh, and in the meantime, you know, we talked last week about seven different scenarios. Another scenario has popped up, um, which is really not really postpones the inevitable. But to me, it's a little alarming. Uh, now it looks like House Republican leadership is considering uh, proposing a short term extension of the debt ceiling until uh, September 30th. So that would tie the debt limit debate really more closely with the federal spending debate because September 30th is the end of the fiscal year. But in my opinion, that creates just the mother of all fiscal cliffs and would just heighten and intensify the atmosphere of crisis as we approach that deadline because a failure to act uh, on the debt ceiling uh, and um, government funding would create this uh, the, the possible default on the debt and a government shutdown uh, at the same time. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and the Republicans have also made it clear that they uh, are, don't want to talk about uh, entitlement reforms. Uh, so, you know, I just don't think that this still is a serious uh, discussion about the debt because uh, entitlements really and revenue are where the problems are. I mean, discretionary spending is not the problem and cutting a couple hundred billion dollars out of discretionary spending still leaves us with an annual deficit of over a trillion dollars a year. Which is uh, really, as you said, I mean, right, I mean, the mother the mother of all uh, bad uh, uh, scenarios and why really Democrats should have raised the borrowing limit uh, when they had the chance and, and could have done it uh, before this. But uh, walk us through uh, where uh, what, what we're seeing on uh, the outlook for defense spending. So the Democrats have really come out uh, swinging on this. Uh, Congressman Rosa DeLauro, who was the chairman of appropriations last year and now is the ranking member, uh, sent out a letter to all you know, 23 federal agencies, including a letter to Secretary Lloyd Austin, uh, asking about what the impacts would be of the Republicans' proposed spending cuts, uh, you know, going back to 22 spending levels. Uh, and in her letter, you know, she made it clear that in her opinion, this would harm communities across the country and damage our national security interests around the world. And at the same time, you know, last Sunday, uh, Kevin McCarthy was being interviewed on Fox and, you know, alarmed the defense community, you know, where he said that he felt that um, the Pentagon could, could live with cuts. And then when asked about where these cuts could come from, uh, he mentioned, you know, targeting us, <laughs> eliminating money on uh, wokeism in the military, something we talked about last week, as well as targeting uh, the money spent to find uh, different fuel sources. Um, you know, in the end, that really doesn't save you know, much money, as you know. But earlier this week, the Republicans had a leadership retreat uh, where there was a lot of pushback on defense cuts among the uh, rank and file Republicans and among other members of the leadership, including Tom Emmer, who's the new whip, who said straight out, we aren't cutting defense. And he said, we have assured our appropriators uh, and our armed services committee members that is not what we're doing. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that, that, uh, that it, we still have a long way to go. Uh, and at the same time, we have folks in the Senate now. There are six uh, Senate far-right Republicans that have formed a group called the Breakfast Club. Uh, and they've now come out saying that they support the House Republicans in cutting spending for domestic programs, including uh, military uh, cuts. So I still think uh, we, we have a long way to go. And a lot of this, too, is in the president's hands, depending on what number he proposes in his budget request that will come over in March. Uh, but I don't see the Republicans 
going under President Biden's number. But the question is, will they pass a bill if they can pass a bill uh, that also keeps pace with inflation? Uh, let me ask you uh, really quickly about uh, committee assignments. What is it we need to know uh, about uh, uh, assignments? I mean, aside and, and obviously it's been widely reported uh, that uh, Kevin McCarthy has thrown uh, Ilan Omar, uh, Eric Swalwell, as, as well as Adam Schiff uh, off of committees, kind of an unprecedented uh, move in, in some respects. But walk us through the committee assignments and what they ultimately mean. Sure. Well, I'll start with uh, with Schiff, Swalwell, and Omar really fast because it's really not unprecedented. I mean, we did see uh, the Democrats, you know, remove uh, Paul Gosar and Marjorie Taylor Greene from their committees last Congress, and so we knew that if Republicans took control, that there would be this tit for tat. Uh, now, Schiff and Swalwell are both on a select committee. They're on the Select Committee on Intelligence. So right. the Speaker has the discretion to remove them without a full committee of the House, in which he has done. Uh, but Ilan Omar. They want to remove her from the House Foreign Affairs Committee. That has to go to a vote of the full House. And it's unclear whether the votes will be there. I would expect all the Democrats to support her. But there are already two Republicans that have come out uh, saying that they may not vote to remove uh, Omar from her committees. Uh, Representative uh, Victoria Sparks from Indiana uh, and Nancy Mace uh, from South Carolina, who's one of the new members of the Armed Services Committee, has uh, been very cool to the idea. Uh, at the same time, Congressman Stubbe from Florida uh, fell off his roof. Uh, earlier in the week uh, and has been hospitalized. So he may not be able to come back to D.C. to vote for several weeks. So uh, if two more Republicans don't support this, uh, Ilan Omar will remain on the Foreign Affairs Committee. So that will be a very interesting vote. Um, at the same time, uh, both the Republicans and Democrats continue to populate uh, their committees. And also the China Select Committee has been populated by the Republicans. We're still waiting for the Democrats to name their ranking member uh, and populate their committee. Uh, I think one thing of note is there are some changes on subcommittee chairmanships on armed services. Uh, Congressman Rob Whitman will now chair the Tactical Air right. Land Forces uh, subcommittee. Uh, Lamborn will stay at the Strat Forces subcommittee. Uh, Congressman Trent Kelly will be the new chairman of the Sea Power and Projection Forces subcommittee. Uh, Mike Gallagher now will be chairing uh, the Committee on Cyber, uh, Innovative Technologies and Information Systems, at the same time chairing the Select Committee on China. So this is a big year for Mike Gallagher. Uh, Jim Banks is now moved over to the Personnel subcommittee. Uh, Jack Bergman uh, from Michigan is a new subcommittee chairman. He will chair the subcommittee on intelligence and special operations. Mike Walsh will stay as chairman of readiness. And Rogers is going to establish a uh, panel that's going to oversee military quality of life issues. And that panel will be led by uh, Congressman Don Bacon. Jim, uh, I want to bring you uh, into the discussion. Obviously, the Ukraine war uh, continues to to loom uh, large, we uh, finally saw, uh, you know, Germany, you know, the United States sending M1s, satisfying Germany's request, then Germany clearing uh, the export of Leopard tanks, whether from Germany or other allies uh, and partners to Ukraine. Ukrainians say they need 300, 400 tanks. They're going to be getting about 100. Look, all of this, and I, I'm going to go to Dove uh, in a little bit here because he wrote a great piece in The Hill uh, saying that, you know, we're doing too little too late. This should have happened in October. October to prepare uh, so the Ukrainians were properly equipped uh, for an offensive um, or a Russian counterattack, uh, really, that the Russians are preparing for. There's going to be a broader mobilization. What does the entire drama uh, tell us uh, about the alliance and how we're making decisions? And is there any evidence that we're actually going to dramatically step up the kind of aid with the speed that the Ukrainians uh, need that help? Well, there's a lot in there to unpack, Vago, but I, but just to start off, I think uh, uh, what Dove said in his in his piece uh, is absolutely right. It's it's um, 
it's too late, uh, frankly. Uh, well, you know, I guess it's too little too late. We'll have to see if, in fact, that's the case. But for sure, it is really late. And for sure, it is little in compared to what they're going to actually need on the battlefield. But there's been some movement uh, just a few minutes ago. I heard that the Poles were going to provide 60 of their Leopard tanks. Uh, so that's upping the number. I think really the bulk of the tanks are going to be coming and more quickly from the other allies who have Leopard. I, I saw a figure of 15 allies having Leopard in their uh, in their uh, possession, and uh, I'm not sure of the readiness of those tanks, uh, but uh, but they're they're out there in Europe, uh, and and if the Allies can make them move, then maybe we can make up a little bit of time uh, and get the uh, certainly get the training started. I know Germany wants to start that right now, and so uh, let's see what 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 we can do about trying to fill the gap in terms of too little, too late. We're going to have to just see what happens in the next month or so. But I, I will say what this shows us is that we are still having trouble uh, making quick decisions. There's a lot of hand-wringing. I, I think this tank decision had its own peculiarities with the Germans needing to wait for us. Um, and uh, we were a bit too patient, I think, on this. Uh, and I, I think we began to run out of time, uh, understanding that the, that the Russians are, have probably accelerated um, they're planning for an offensive. And so the U.S. Uh, probably turned to the Germans and said, we've got to do it and we've got to do it now. And that might have also helped to unlock the Abrams coming out of the U.S. But the Abrams, you know, that's a long term thing. There's there is a lot of detail that we don't know about how the army is going to approach this. As you know, they're talking about um, making them from scratch. Uh, and I think that has a lot to do with the classified nature of the armor on the current M1A2s. Um, that, that they don't want this kind of uh, armor uh, uh, technique to be taken by the Russians if they were to capture one of these Abrams. So I think, I think the army is trying to figure out how can we move quickly, but how can we give an export uh, version of the, of the Abrams uh, to, the, to, to Ukraine rather than something that's, that's loaded with some rather classified uh, US technology in terms of armor. So. So that's a long-term thing. It's the leopard that's in the short term. And now that we're past this, this foot dragging by the Germans, um, the allies really have to move. Uh, and uh, I think I sh the training shouldn't take that long in terms of operating it. The maintenance might be different, but I hope that the training can move at speed as well. Jim, I'm going to go to uh, Dove and, and to Patrick uh, in a moment, but also want to get your sense uh, and bring, uh, you know, Turkey and Hungary uh, into this uh, as well. You and I talked late on Friday, uh, last Friday afternoon after we had taped the show and where Hungary's opposition became clear. And in the pre in the last week, we've seen a Swedish uh, right of center uh, person burn a Koran in front of uh, the uh, uh uh, Turkish embassy in Stockholm. Uh, obviously, Sweden's a democracy. The prime minister has said, you know, we're a democracy and that allows people to do stupid things sometimes. Uh, and Recep Tayyip Erdogan has vowed, you know, there's no way Turkey is going to support um, uh, Stockholm, uh, Sweden joining the alliance. There looked like there was some air between uh, the Finns. Uh, you know, we have the Hungarians basically acting as agents uh, of the Russians as well. I should point out, right, m m the money that was going from Moscow to Marine Le Pen now goes through Budapest uh, because it can't go directly through Moscow. So Moscow is still exerting a lot of influence here. How does this work out? What has to be done to resolve this and get these two nations into the alliance? Finns being responsible and saying, hey, let's have a cooling off period a little bit. 
where are we, where are we going? And is this actually going to happen? And what's the message it sends, right? I mean, the most important message was NATO is back and nations want to join it. That only works if the nations in the club want to let others join the club. You know, NATO has complicated issues, but this one is really a, 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 a real wing ding of a complicated issue. <laughs> what I what I do want to uh, say up front, though, is that I'm beginning to hear, and I, and I don't know uh, what the truth is on this, but I've heard that, in fact, the person that would burn the Koran uh, in Stockholm was under was paid by the Russians to do that. Now, I that was that's been reported, I think, out of some European. Um, uh, news outlets uh, over the past uh, 12 hours or so. And again, I, I haven't seen anything more, but, but that would make some sense, uh, but we'll just have to see. Um, but in terms of all the various issues you've raised, so with Finland, I, um, I, I talked with the, the Finns quite a bit about this. And I think this idea that the Finns might go separately from the Swedes, um, that was a bit of, I think, stray electrons, uh, frankly, as we used to say in the Pentagon. I, I don't think there is any intent uh, on the behalf of the Finns, certainly not right now, to uh, leave the Swedes behind and join NATO by themselves. So I think they're going to be um, still in lockstep on this, and that's the that's the way the Finns and Swedes have always been. So I think they're gonna they're gonna you know keep it going that way. Um, you know, I, I I think all eyes are still on the election coming up in May. Uh, Erdogan, I have not seen Erdogan press his uh, leverage, if you will, that he seems to have. I have not seen him press it in such, to such a degree as he's doing now. Uh, and, um, and so I think we're probably reaching a point where the alliance and the nations, and including the United States, are not going to be so patient with this maneuvering by Erdogan. Nations have interests. Nations use their leverage at NATO to pursue interests, but they don't do it this way. And they don't do it at the expense of the alliance. And that's what's happening now. So... I think there's a there's an end of patience coming up in the West. What'll happen is usually when this this kind of of hostage taking takes place in the end game, um, the, the usually there's a deal cut, uh, and when the vote has to be taken or something has to be approved, everybody's on board. They get consensus and they move beyond that. So we're looking at the election now, the end game running up to the election. If behind the scenes Turkey and the two Nordic nations uh, and the alliance are not cutting a deal here. Um, and Erdogan post-election continues his obstruction. NATO will have a crisis because we will have now a, uh, a nation that is acting against the alliance, undercutting the alliance. Uh, it's more than Sweden and Finland here. It's now Turkey as an ally. And that's gonna be something that NATO will now have to grapple with if after the election, there's no deal cut. Last point, and we talked about this a little bit, the U.S. Uh, is beginning to uh, sweeten the pot a bit, you know, put in some mood music by trying to make the F-16 uh, uh, transfer to Turkey, to make that get through the Congress, et cetera. I know they're working on it. Um, I'm not sure what the latest update is, but we're trying now, I think, to, um, to put a sweetener into the deal that needs to be cut. And I hope that comes through. Uh, we'll just have to wait and see. And, and, and I hope also in Sweden, whether it's being paid for by Russian money or not, the, the extremists there have got to cool it uh, and, and let us, uh, all of us, work this thing with Turkey and with Sweden uh, and, um, and not inflame things. But I tell you that it, it is interesting that if the Russians are stirring the pot in Stockholm, uh, you know, that's, that, that's something I, I wouldn't doubt. 
Uh, and I should point out that the Swedes uh, are uh, leaders in mis and disinformation identification uh, and have uh, a lot of very sophisticated capabilities uh, on that front. The uh, company uh, recorded uh, Future uh, is one of those that does almost real-time uh, identification uh, and open source uh, intelligence on, on this stuff. Um, uh, Dove, I want to uh, come to you and have you comment on both of those uh, uh, points uh, as, as well, right? The speed with which we're doing, the lessons that we're drawing. You wrote a great piece in The Hill uh, on that, as I, as I, as I mentioned. Uh, and what, what's the way to mollify uh, uh, you know, what are the kind of negotiations that will be required um, to get these two countries in? I know you've had conversations on that across the week as well. Yes. Um, well, let me begin with the um, issue of too little, too late. Um, I don't buy the Army's argument that uh, it's a matter of armor. And the reason I say that, first of all, let me point out, the Army has between six and 8,000 tanks uh, either active or in storage. And so to turn around and say we can't get any tanks is frankly ridiculous. 31 is a joke. That's a half of what we now know the polls will be giving. Um, but in terms of the armor, remember, the British are turning over Challenger. And Challenger is a very good tank with very sophisticated armor. At a minimum, what we could be doing is turning over the M1A1s which may not be as good as the A2s, but are a damn sight better than what the Ukrainians have. So frankly, I don't think, I know the military has been against this from the start. I think the army has been especially against this from the start. I think we're making a tremendous mistake and our credibility, frankly, gets weaker and weaker when we say, yeah, we're going to give them tanks, you know, and it might take a year or more. Um, there's no question Phoebe Novakovic, who runs GD, says that they can build the tanks. That's not the issue. The issue is when do they arrive? And if they arrive in a year's time and there's been a big battle and Ukraine's lost some territory, even an inch as far as I'm concerned, that doesn't make us look terribly good. Now on the Finnish Swedish thing, first of all, I've heard the same thing from the Finns that Jim has heard. They've said, look, uh, there is no plan B right now. Uh, we've got to see how things play out. We've got to see what happens in the May elections. Uh, it isn't even obvious who's going to run against uh, against Erdogan. He may win. He may lose. We don't know. For the time being, we're with the Swedes. And uh, that's the end of that story. Now, on the guy who burnt the Koran, uh, the reason I would say the reports about the Russians are credible is that the former defense minister, who happens to be a friend of mine, Peter Hultqvist, told me some years ago, and this was public uh, in Sweden, but not in America, that there had been a staffer on the Swedish Democrats, who, by the way, are tied into this fellow. The fellow who burnt the Quran is a Dane, but he was apparently paid or in some way connected to the Swedish Democrats. The Swedish Democrats had a top staffer in the Reichstag, in the parliament, who was on the Russian payroll until he was outed. So there's been a long time link between some of the Swedish Democrats and the Russians. So this wouldn't surprise me at all. And fits with uh, a pattern uh, that uh, the Russians have tried to use against uh, the Swedes uh, to also incite anti-Muslim violence, uh, right? Uh, there were some images that were taken from Latin America of uh, 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 folks throwing crucifixes in, in front, you know, anyway, I mean, there's a whole series of uh, activities, such activities 
uh, that uh, have been sort of unmasked by uh, the Swedes uh, as, uh, as uh, being problematic. Uh, Patrick, we're going to go to you uh, in just a moment, but uh, a quick note uh, urging everybody in our audience to check out our weekly podcast, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, uh, uh, sponsored by uh, HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look uh, at all things space and will be joining us on Monday uh, for a preview on a, on a fantastic uh, special report uh, she's done about ground stations around the world and our new Air Power podcast uh, that I co-host with our contributing editor, J.J. Gertler, in a program uh, that is brought to you by GE uh, Aerospace. Uh, Patrick, I want to uh, go to you and get kind of your sense uh, on how Asia continues to look at all of these uh, mechanics, the com uh, complications that go with expanding uh, the NATO uh, alliance uh, and the continuing war in, in Ukraine and how that's shaping sort of regional dynamics and regional approaches. Well, Vago, I can't have a single discussion in Washington or with Asian friends uh, to, to talk about whether Ukraine in the Ukraine war portends some kind of a conflict over Taiwan in the, in the coming few years. This is just such a central discussion. It's weighing on everybody's minds. It's uh, clearly driving a lot of policies that are going on. Um, you saw this this week in Delhi, for instance, when former Singaporean ambassador Bilahari Kausikin delivered a, a major memorial lecture in honor of former Prime Minister Vajpayee. Uh, and he said this, he said, if China starts a war over Taiwan, it must win and it must win quickly. Putin can survive, I think probably will survive a botched war against Ukraine, but no Chinese leader will survive a failed war against Taiwan. And you know, that's that's a fraught statement because he's he's partly saying that's what the PLA's foremost task is right now, preparing to win the Taiwan war quickly if called upon to do so. Um, and so that's what is uh, driving so much. And yet the stakes for what happens to Ukraine um, is, is a key contingent factor in all of this. And that's why Asian allies are fully on board with NATO and with the U.S., to make sure they do at least enough, maybe too little too, maybe not too late, but maybe too little, uh, but but make sure that Ukraine is able to get through this winter um, and, and this offensive that seems to be coming from Russia um, and come out the other side. And Seoul, by the way, is providing uh, very good tanks, these K2 Black Panther tanks that Poland has now received last month. That's why Poland can make those leopards available in part to Ukraine. Um, and um, and who's going to uh, Seoul in, 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 uh, in Tokyo this week? It's NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg, even before uh, Secretary of Defense uh, Austin arrives in Korea. So there are a lot of discussions going on with our allies in Asia about how do we shore up Ukraine? How do we prepare for deterrence across the Taiwan Strait? Um, Secretary, General, Secretary General Stoltenberg will undoubtedly talk also about things that are very important to um, uh, extended deterrence uh, thoughts in, in Korea um, about how does NATO do this. Um, and I think Secretary Austin and Stoltenberg will both reassure President Yoon and the Yoon administration in Seoul that uh, Seoul-Washington relations are every bit as close uh, as any NATO relationship when it comes to deterrence. Um, so those are some of the key issues, even as Japan is thinking not about the kinetic uh, arms uh, that they want uh, that they are not providing, but they could provide to to uh, Ukraine because it's not technically a war; it's just a special operation, as somebody has pointed out in Tokyo. 
Um, but at the same time, they're getting ready to host the G7 in May, and they want to make sure that uh, Ukraine is ready to rebuild, uh, as well as to sustain the unity that's going to be needed to fight what may be a very protracted war. Um, let me uh, ask you uh, about uh, Chinese uh, leadership changes. You know, you you mentioned, uh, you know, sort of the Chinese focus and that, you know, if we do this, we have to win. Um, talk to us about the new hardliners, uh, because there's um, a player who has been charged, right, with exactly that portfolio. Yes, the, the whole uh, ideological uh, argument and political argument is to try to come up with some other formula for uh, one country, two systems, or, you know, as was applied to Hong Kong or the U.S.-Taiwan understanding about um, the one China principle as, as Beijing wants to practice it. So they're going to be working. These are all loyalists to Xi Jinping. Um, and yet at the same time, we have to be aware of the potential for the rise of factionalism. And there's a discussion going on right now in the China watching community about how, to what degree these two or three key factions are rising uh, in the CCP. Uh, and will we be able to uh, play upon their differences or will this just simply be a fait accompli? Xi Jinping is going to go all out to try to get his legacy uh, accomplished of uh, the great reunification, which depends on uh, including uh, Taiwan with the mainland. And um, so I, I think the key point here on leadership issues is can China um, get through this COVID winter, which they seem to be getting through so far, uh, but it's still early. They're expecting a second wave of infections and possibly death rates, but can they get the economy going? They're working on that. And can they keep pressing on the Taiwan issue so that they do not give up an inch, but instead um, make it clear over the next year as we get into the Taiwan election that this is an inevitable path toward unification and China is going to swallow Taiwan uh, and redefine what is the real status quo, which is a de facto independent democratic Taiwan. They want to redefine that and create a new status quo, which is, no, it's like Hong Kong. It is just part of China and always has been. Dove, I'm going to go to you in a moment. But Jim, uh, I think you had a tank armor uh, thing you wanted to add. And I just want to, so that we don't forget about it and we don't get too uh, far downstream because you put your hand up on it. Uh, go uh, go ahead and, and uh, fi finish off your thought there. And then I want to bring uh, uh, Dove in on the China point. Go ahead, Jim. I wanted to come in and just support Dove very strongly on this point about the army uh, and, the, and the tanks. Uh, my understanding is that the army, as well as DOD generally, have always been against, uh, you know, providing the the, the Abrams, uh, and I and I do think that this the uh, this issue on the armor is is a big one for them. But but the but they've got so many of the older tank. I don't understand why they can't very quickly pull those out of storage, do whatever they have to do to get them ready to move, and to get them over there. I don't understand why they feel that they've got to make them brand new, except that they, they want to do an export version of it. And I just think that's just crazy. And I'm hoping like Dove, that they can go back to all of these tanks and storage and get those on the road instead of going and manufacturing them from, uh, from scratch. That's just, to me, is just crazy. They've got to give us a better reason for that. Um, look, I mean, I can't imagine uh, that uh, the Soviets uh, have not really unlocked the secrets uh, of that tank uh, after all of these years and, and, and managed to get an up close and personal look uh, at it. I mean, obviously, you want to keep that kind of a weapon out of the hands of an adversary. But at the end of the day, the Russians are capturing arms there now. And indeed, right 
the Royal United Services Institute uh, is just an absolutely terrific team. We had a terrific discussion with Jack Watling uh, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, in fact, uh, Jack, James, uh, Gary uh, were at a Wilson uh, event uh, in, in Washington where they talked about the dependency that Russia, China, uh, Iran, and North Korea have on American uh, and Western microelectronics and all of their weapons to make uh, make them work, right? Uh, so, you know, it, it's important not, you know, don't drop some of your most important technology in the lap of a potential adversary, but we also have to do a much better job strangulating the flow of uh, our chips, our uh, electronics uh, that are going into their weapons and killing Ukrainians and, and indeed threatening us all uh, with them. Uh, Dove, uh, I want to go to you, Jim. Thanks very much for making that point. Dove, uh, over over to you. Yeah, two points to supplement what Patrick said. The first is, and I think I may have mentioned it last week, but it's worth repeating. Um, I heard from a very, very senior general in one of the East European militaries that they had just had uh, talks with the Australians about Ukraine. And I think what that simply indicates is the degree to which uh, you're seeing uh, a crosswalk between uh, our Asian friends, our Australasian friends, and uh, uh, our NATO allies because of Ukraine. So that's just to underscore Patrick's point there. And then I wanted to point out that when Patrick talked about Japan and its concern about, okay, what happens after this war? How do we rebuild Ukraine? Patrick may remember this because he worked with me on it when I was undersecretary. I coordinated the first organized support for Iraq uh, from all our friends and allies at the uh, UN. And the first country to jump in and basically put the onus on everybody else to help the Iraqis out was Japan. Uh, they kicked in at the time a billion and a half. And so uh, I wouldn't be surprised if Japan worked with us again, God willing, whenever this war ends and Ukraine is, is free and independent and, and sovereign over its territory, that Japan plays a major leading role, not just a role, but a major leading role in the reconstruction of Ukraine. Uh, I, I think uh, Japan... Uh, we're going to find uh, is uh, a, a linchpin and increasingly uh, important industrial partner uh, when it comes to defense and security. Uh, and, um, you know, whether, you know, as we've discussed on this program multiple times, whether it's in uh, an AUKUS, however you want to look at it, uh, or whether it is for armaments uh, pr production more generally, um, as uh, as the country tries to, to normalize its, its sort of uh, and not just regional uh, security role, but uh, global uh, role. Um, Patrick, I want to uh, go back to you. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, Stoltenberg. I mentioned uh, that uh, Defense Secretary Austin is going to be going to Korea uh, as well as uh, to the Philippines. We've also got the Australians and the Brits. Walk us uh, through what we expect uh, Secretary Austin to accomplish uh, on his visit. Uh, obviously, the alliance with South Korea is important, increasingly important as it becomes the armorer to Europe. Uh, at the same time, um, you know, the, the U.S.-Philippine uh, relationship has been fraught. Uh, it now is a new government. Duterte uh, is out, but uh, there are some questions about Marcos, uh, just like there were about uh, Duterte. Walk us through what he hopes to accomplish and then give us a quick uh, update as well. Well, there's nothing like a war to focus attention. And so, yeah, this is not normal diplomacy. This is very serious sets of discussions going on 
uh, with our allies in both theaters. And uh, Secretary Austin's trip uh, has been well prepared by uh, people like Assistant Secretary of State Dan Crittenbrink and Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense Lindsey Ford. Both were in the Philippines for bilateral security talks and uh, pointing out, among other things, the important role in the future of Subic Bay Shipyard, which is now back in friendly hands. Um, and uh, and yet its proximity to Scarborough Shoal um, figures heavily when you think about contingency planning around the Spratleys and the South China Sea, but really for Taiwan contingencies. So everything that's going on in terms of discussions right now in Korea and Japan, in the Philippines, in Australia, uh, with AUKUS, with the AUKMIN, which is the UK-Australian uh, discussion that will be going on in London this week, all of these things are focused on being prepared for maintaining deterrence across the Taiwan Strait, being prepared for North Korea, uh, helping Ukraine not lose the war, hopefully win, uh, whatever that could mean in terms of the future, uh, and preparing for this uh, uh, greater contribution on the part of allies working together. Um, I think in the Philippines, you're going to see, uh, 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 again, a focus on preparing for the very first ever two plus two. So there's an elevation of the strategic dialogue between Manila in Washington. And, and President Marcos, for all of the baggage that he carries with his father's reputation and past uh, ignominy, uh, nonetheless, he has restored the U.S.-Philippine alliance to a status of where it was under Aquino before the Duterte years. And that's uh, that's a credit to him. He's focused clearly on economic growth in the Philippines, by the way, is the leading economic uh, sort of uh, economy in, um, in Southeast Asia right now, 8% growth, I think. Um, and you're going to see uh, a discussion of future sites of access for military prepositioning around the Luzon uh, area, essentially, uh, again, that southern approach to Taiwan and around Scarborough Shoal. So critical there. And in Korea, um, there'll be discussion not just about the Ukraine war, about um, extended deterrence, uh, reassuring South Korea that they do have a voice on strategic assets on the peninsula, but also a discussion probably about this new UN command assessment over what happened with the drone, uh, counter drone play at the end of December uh, across the military demarcation line. Uh, the UN command just uh, released its assessment that both North and South Korea violated the armistice. Well, technically that's true. Um, the South Korean defense was, well, we were acting in self-defense when we sent our uh, unmanned uh, sort of vehicles forward uh, for reconnaissance purposes, but, I think there are a lot of discussions about what does this portend for the future of deterrence on the peninsula. Um, right. On AUKUS, um, very important discussions. Uh, Deputy Prime Minister um, and Defense Minister Richard Marles will be at the Pentagon in one week. Um, you know, before then, be in London and having discussions uh, on the decisions about AUKUS and about this submarine. He's, he's promised a sub-design in the few weeks' time uh, that will replace the Collins class with a nuclear-powered variant. He's promised there'll be no capability gap, so he's got some interim plan in mind. Um, and uh, this is getting a lot of attention from members of Congress, as you know, including one Congressman, Neil Dunn, who has already said he wants to speak to the incoming Australian ambassador, Kevin Rudd, about the Australian company Austral, um, because it's building parts for the Virginia-class sub, and it's gonna be central to AUKUS. Uh, and yet, when it was building the LCS design, the fact that that design was stolen by the Chinese, apparently, uh, he blames Austin, and so he wants to make sure that our secrets are not going to be flowing to China. Um, right. And this is this is an issue that Kim Beasley, by the way, last point here, former Ambassador Kim Beasley from Australia, 
has just penned a piece basically giving advice to incoming Ambassador Kevin Rudd that he should focus on getting the U.S. trust and getting AUKUS across the finish line and sidestepping his great knowledge about China and in the growing China-U.S. rivalry. So a lot of discussions in the next week or two uh, as we get ready for a big decision about this submarine design in the next couple months. Uh, and uh, really quick, I have to just pose uh, two uh, quick uh, questions before we part, and we've got about a minute and a half left. One is, uh, does the designation of the Wagner Group as a terrorist organization really change anything? And B, uh, any activity on the part of the U.S. government to actually constrict the flow uh, of high-tech componentry, microelectronic componentry, uh, to our adversaries? I know that there's a lot of talk about this. We're building up our own capability but it's, it's fascinating to me, the terrific work that uh, the Rusi team has done. Uh, and it just makes you wonder why we're not doing a better job to constrict the flow of stuff that, that is jeopardizing our friends uh, and our allies. Uh, Patrick, I know you have your hand up on uh, Wagner. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, I'm not sure we can stop the flow sufficiently, but we should certainly should try. And what I was going to note was the sanctions that the Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control this week passed on the Chinese space company for allegedly supplying the Wagner Group with satellite imagery to support their military operations in Ukraine. Um, some people have said, oh, Beijing probably didn't know. I, I'm sorry, Beijing definitely knew. Um, this is a space company that was set up by former employees of the Chinese Academy of Sciences. You've had the PLA Daily writing about the fact that, hey, Western companies are providing space imagery uh, for Russian troop movements in Ukraine, i.e., why don't we do the same thing for Russia? So they knew about this and they see this as walking uh, that line um, short of entering the war, but still helping to prop up their Russian uh, support. And I think probably think through uh, satellite imagery going forward in conflicts potentially uh, in, in Asia. So I think different lessons I would draw from whether sanctions work. Uh, for me, it's the imagery is a very important part of the component of fighting uh, for whether you're dealing with traditional armies or you're dealing with mercenary groups like Wagner Group. Dove, you get the last word. Go ahead. Yeah, well, you know, they're very active in Africa. And we've been warning Burkina Faso, for example, uh, to keep these guys out. Uh, they're operating actually in former French territories, but the French clearly cannot cope with them by themselves. So uh, I think one of the things that the administration has done by putting them on the terrorist list is both to alert the African countries there's going to be a price if they work with them, and probably also, though, there'll be little to, that people will actually discuss to intensify our work with the French because they are influential in that part of the world. And maybe together we can really do something to uh, hold back the Wagner crowd. Uh, they're exploiting uh, children who work in gold mines. They're 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 really acting like uh, brutal colonialists and getting away with it. But maybe now they won't be able to as easily. The impact will be in the long term more than in the short term. So impact on the battlefield in Ukraine in the coming months kind of thing. Uh, obviously, we're not going to see a lot. But what everyone said, and I agree, over time, we'll see that we'll see there's an impact on the Wagner group and their operations. But in the short term, we won't see anything. Uh, Dove, and uh, we've had some uh, incredible riots uh, and the worst Palestinian riots uh, in a long time. Uh, talk to us a little bit uh, about that and how the Netanyahu government is contributing to it. Well, they, they broke up, uh, or I don't know if they broke up a ring, but they, they killed nine Palestinians whom they, uh, the Israelis said were, were affiliated with Islamic Jihad in, in Jenin on the West Bank, which is a center for Islamic Jihad. 
Of course, it's not just that that's caused the riots. It's this anticipation of what the Netanyahu government might be doing. Still anger over the Temple Mount. So there's a lot going on. And uh, all this does is uh, simply light a match. And, and when that flame goes up, there's going to be real trouble. It's, it's very bad out there right now. Guys, thanks so very much for joining us. An absolute pleasure. Have a great weekend. Great week. Look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much.